What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Social Standard Podcast. I am so excited for my guest today, Kate Winnick. She is the former senior social director of Peloton, um, and she did that role for five years. So if that doesn't excite you about this conversation, I don't know what, what will, but Kate, what's up and welcome. It's great to have you. Hi, so great to be here. Yeah, so I just alluded to it, but you know, five years at Peloton running social, that means obviously you were there pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and post-pandemic. Yeah. I am sure that was a journey. So give us, <laughs> if you will, kind of like a general synopsis of, of that time. Like what, you know, mm-hmm. what actually, what actually happened? Like, I mean, I, I don't even know where to start. Honestly, there's, there's so much I'm sure that you yeah. can share with that. Yeah, it was, it was a long journey. I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, that people who were not necessarily a, a part of that whole story arc don't remember is how fast everything happened. So when we, I joined the company in 2018, um, in, in about midway through 2018, that was pre IPO. Um, yes. So we, we went public that fall. Um, and then that Christmas was the big holiday ad that blew everything up. Um, like all those, those events all occurred within really just a couple of months of each other. Um, and that was, that was winter 2019. And then, you know, it's, it's really pretty much a year later that we're, that we were into COVID. Um, and, you know, and from there working our way back out of it. So, I mean, and those are really just like, I think the like national global (laughs) highlights, there was a lot more in there, but I think in terms of, you know, in terms of what it's like to run social at a company that's in hyper growth and experiencing hyper growth, you really are working at a different company every six months. And so it made some things that I had become accustomed to prior to coming to Peloton. Um, I'd led social at Click, Me- at Click Media Group, um, which owns Who, What, Where, Birdie, yep. and My Domain, um, or did at the time. They've Great brands, them. yeah. Um, and then at Hearst Magazines, prior to that, leading social for Elle, um, for the U.S. edition, which was sort of the flagship global edition. Sure. Um, and then at a couple of other small startups before that. So, you know, I, this was this was not my first rodeo with running a large social program and a brand. And yet it was a completely different experience because you're working for essentially a different company every six months. Yeah. And so the things that I was accustomed to having, like annualized strategy and, you know, like planning months in advance simply wasn't possible under the circumstances that, you know, things were things were happening too quickly in the business to plan as far ahead as we all wanted to and needed to. Um, and so learning to really carve that out and to to pivot within pivots um, mm. was really, you know, that was that was the lesson over over five years over and over again. Yeah, I can imagine. And I think that's a really good point, too, because I know that even if you hold steady the company and the growth and you have all of those things, even then, in the last three years, social has changed so much, mm-hmm. right? right? So there is there's so much pivoting going on for those of us who have not even experienced this hyper growth stage. So right. I can yeah. imagine yeah. to add that on top of it. In 2018, you know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> it, it and you know, no matter what, but exactly. But the thing the thing that I think is interesting, and just to remind people too, it's like you know, you, you mentioned a few a few sort of. Uh, bumps along this this Peloton ride that you've had, right? But they did, you know, you you IPO'd. That's interesting. And I believe you even you you created live streamed content or live was it live stream or was it real time? It was real time coverage. So I'm gonna edit this part out. I'm just gonna say 
that I just want to, like, I want to share with our audience um, a little bit about some of those like accolades that you had during that time, because it is to your point, you can see a lot publicly, but what's going on internally and knowing how the social team is privied and involved in a lot of this, mm-hmm. I think is crucial. So, um, you know, you did some, some vanity metric style work here where you went from 135,000 on Instagram to 1.9 million on Instagram. Right. I mean, that's, you that's know, we all know that follower growth is not the most important metric, but it was right. one of those things that like, and, and couching that to leadership as I came sure. in, you know, I was, I, I think there was a, I had sort of like a split sense about it that mm-hmm. I was like, I don't care about the follower metric and that I know that that's not what tells me I have an engaged audience and tells me that I have content that's working. But at the same time, we're, we're creating a market for a new product, right? Connected fitness was essentially not a thing before Peloton. And if we're going to be the market leader, we need a following that kind of reflects that. Like we, I, I wanted us to be as big in our space as we felt and as we were. And so some of that was following. So I was like, we're going to do this organically. We're not going to, we're not going to cheat. There's no black hat, anything in this situation, but you know, it's, it's something that I keep an eye on and that I wanted to get us, I wanted to get us to a million. I figured at the point at which we were over a million, I would stop sweating it and like it would grow however much it grew. Um, But that sort of initial race to a million was important because I wanted the brand to be taken seriously and for people to see that this was catching on. And I think follower metrics is like, it's one of those things that like it doesn't matter, but if you're debating whether or not you're taking the source of a piece of content seriously, it is something that I think plays into, into perception. If it wasn't, people wouldn't Absolutely. worry about it. And it's, it's also reflective of the hyper growth that the company was seeing. Yes, so I think that, that that to me tells, it ladders up with the story of Peloton and Peloton's growth. Definitely. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the one unanswerable question, I think, for so many of us, which is like, well, what percentage of our followers are customers? I'm like, I don't know. Good luck getting that out of Meta. <laughs> like, and, and does it matter? No, I don't, I, I don't know that it does matter. But I think at Peloton, it was always a really interesting question because we're a subscription business, right? Sure. So we have both retention and acquisition metrics that were really significant and really important to us. Um, and it's, that's, that's always the case, you know, when you have subscribers who are re-upping every month and who are constantly re-engaging with your content, ideally every day, you know, you want to be speaking to them on an ongoing basis and you want to talk to them like they're a part of the family while at the same time, making your content comprehensible for people who are on day one or who may have serious misperceptions about your brand and who, who want to, who need to be educated in a way that's really intentional. And that really reflects where they are in their journey. Like, it's, it's, you know, I think we always, people, people always talk about, you know, like, where is social in the funnel? And, you know, like, it's everywhere. And then you're also running two different sort of funnels. Like you, you have a sales and acquisition funnel, and then you also have this sort of retention flywheel that you're trying to activate. A hundred percent. And that's, and that's sort of what I even meant about like, does it really matter? Because you, mm-hmm. yeah, of course it does matter, right. To some degree. And that baseline, the retention and the constant community, I think is probably yeah. the big word that I would lead that you do, but you also do need to be using it to acquire new customers. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's to me, it's almost like a 50, 50 split. If you're doing, yeah. if you, if you've got a 50, 50 split in this ideal world where you could actually measure this, I think that's probably how you get the, the flywheel yeah. going. 
my my day one story from Peloton, and this was literally my first day at work. Um, I started the weekend after our annual member event, which at the time was called HRI. It later became Homecoming, and now it's actually Peloton on tour. You can get tickets on the site. Love it. Um, and there, uh, and, and I was I was talking with our VP of Community, who's like a wonderful person. Who had, she's she'd been with Peloton at that point as long as I stayed she'd been there I think almost nine years and and, wow. and she she was asking me she's like so what did you think of the social coverage from from HRI this weekend and I'd been watching and I'd been paying attention and I was curious to learn and I finally just said I was like you know it was cool to watch but at no point did anyone tell me what HRI stands for like I just had no idea what this like I knew this event was called HRI. I had no idea what that meant or where that came from or how to understand what the event was called. And that to me was like really emblematic of the challenge that was ahead of me for the next five years, which was to take this brand that had built this incredibly strong and loyal community that was really family like in the early days and to figure out how to scale it and make it comprehensible and understandable and exciting to everybody else without losing that community feel. Yes, 100%. Oh, my goodness. I, I think it's so interesting that you were able to have your first day be that particular event because you're right. I mean, coming in with like a total fresh perspective, you're a newbie. What an education that was for you and what a benefit mm -hmm. I think it was to – Ultimately, the you didn't want me to start the weekend before and work through the event, um, but I, I pushed back on that. <laughs> we still joke about that all these years. That's later. a lot of pressure to start to like do exactly. social media for I a brand. Like, that I you're just, I can you know, do a live social event strategy for a brand I've worked for for ten minutes. So right. maybe I'll just exactly. start on Monday. Maybe I'll hang out. That's good. Good for you to to kind of know the limit there, right? Because I think a lot of people would say, sure, I'll dive in. And then I think that probably actually sets you up for a lot of failure. Yeah, but, yeah. I was, I was like, this would be a real sort of crucible type thing that like, I don't know if, if any of us really benefit from meeting each other exactly. under these circumstances. So, okay. The, the obvious question here then is what does HRI stand for? Oh, it was, uh, it was Home Rider Invasion. So at the time, this was, the tread was not yet on the market. Um, so bike was really the, the flagship product we were doing, we were doing some strength classes and some things like that, but pretty much everything else, uh, really dedicated strength content, yoga, running, like all of that had yet to launch. Right. Cause this is 2018. Um, yes, exactly. So these were, these were not Peloton members yet. These were home riders. Got it. So you um, could still buy a bike mm -hmm. at home and ride at home, or you could go in studio cause we were still doing that. Yes, you could go in studio, and that was how they originally conceived it, was this was literally just a group of very loyal riders who decided to get together and storm the studio for a weekend, yeah. and they booked every single class all together and just took class after class and threw themselves a party in the in the lobby, which was really fun. We were like, we should do something with this. So that's, um, that's a really great like digital community brought into real life mm -hmm. experience. Oh, yeah. That's so interesting. Okay, got it. Yeah, that makes for great content, I'm sure, and I'm sure that the social – the buzz on social and people sharing and stuff, that content's got to be pretty dynamic mm -hmm. and pretty, pretty helpful as you guys are continuing to grow. Yeah, I think it's fun. You know, I think, I think we're at a different point in the journey now where like, if you're a Peloton person and you're obsessed with Peloton, like your friends and family, like probably are used to hearing that. That's, that's a big thing. Do you remember, um, Beachbody, uh, mm -hmm. fitness with Tony, Gosh, I'm not going to remember his name now, but it was P90X was a big, like mm -hmm. a big thing. And I remember doing that like back when I was in private equity in Boston and actually like our mm -hmm. whole firm did it and it was all anyone could talk about. And I think that's the yeah. thing with fitness is people just want to talk about their journey, uh, no matter what, right. And know what they're going on. So yeah. 
that naturally lends itself, right? Whereas are people necessarily going to want to talk about like their new dishes at nauseum? <laughs> no, probably not. Right. So you guys, ha you guys do have a few things going for you. Um, mm -hmm that sort of grease the wheels on this, on this success yeah. path, right? I think it's one of, I think it's one of the things that makes working in fitness as a discipline really rewarding and as a field really rewarding is that ultimately when people are telling you about their fitness journey, they're telling you about themselves. They're telling you about something they're doing that, that they're really proud of. Um, you know, fitness stories ultimately are stories of self-improvement and self-actualization. And I know it sounds very cheesy and very Peloton to be like, you know, we can do hard things and we can push through this and we can pick up heavy things and carry them longer than we ever thought. Um, but watching our community do that day after day was the greatest privilege of that five years. I mean, it's it was inspiring in every moment to watch people get knocked down, take a hit and get back up and and to use Peloton as a tool to help them do that. Sure. And it was it was really something that was very special to be a part of building. You're not doing that for them. They're doing it for themselves. Right. But the better tools we can put in place, the more options we can give them for accessing that part of themselves. I think, you know, the, the better off people are. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know even watching a lot of your content, I actually spent a good time checking out TikTok as well uh, mm -hmm. last night. And it is it's very motivational and it's very exciting. And I was like, I need a. I need a Peloton. I need it now. Like, I want to do this. Like, let's, let's do it. Right. You know, you get very excited. And I think to be what a, what a privilege to be part of that journey with people. I think that's so yeah. interesting. And what an interesting time as a marketer and a social media leader to be able to really kind of connect with someone in a positive way, right? Like everything right. is positive. You're sw literally swimming in like endorphins as you're yeah. you know, working out. And it's like, you have such a natural positive association that's really cool. Now, I think the way that you capitalize on that, it's like you, you kind of have this gift, right? But then how you capitalize on it, how you take it to the next level, mm -hmm. that I think is where the magic of someone like you comes in. Um, right. And I know that, you know, I know we say it, it is vanity metrics and it is, but to your point, I think still, I mean, listen, 135,000 to 1.9 million, that's some blood, sweat and tears, <laughs> no matter, no matter how you look at it. Right. So I yeah. think you should be super proud of that. I also thought it was interesting that, um, you launched on, uh, was on Giphy that you launched and you have like over mm -hmm. 2.5 billion impressions from that, Yeah, which is incredible. Uh, you also, as we mentioned, the, the IPO coverage that you did in mm -hmm. real time there from the NASDAQ, like in New York, I mean, amazing, right? Like that, that has to be like a cool moment. That's like one of those sort of like, it, it, it also, again, feels like a vanity thing, you sure. know, to some degree that like, you know, for, for brands to put up a billboard in Times Square, what does that really mean? What does that say about you? Like, is this, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker through and through, like born and raised. So like, is New York the center of the universe? Like clearly, but like actually no, like actually we're a national brand, an international brand. And like, does it mean that much to have simply paid some money for some out of home in Times Square? Like, not really. Um, but it, but it is a really, it is a very cool moment in that, like, this is sort of a cultural icon and to get to cast yourself into that environment mm -hmm. and to see other people see it and react to it. It's a very special thing to get to, to get to experience yeah. as a marketer. To, I agree. To kind of and I also think it, it puts you into, it puts social into another way, which I want to talk about, you know, in a few mm -hmm. minutes here, but like you are for all intensive purposes, a PR firm at that moment. Right. Yeah. It's not, you know, yeah. you're not, and I don't want to say just social media because at this point in time, social media is marketing to the extent yeah. of like, you know, what anything has ever been, but social touches so many different aspects of the business and you really are, 
You are mm-hmm. a PR machine then. And how you, how you convey things on social media is impactful to how your audience and your potential yeah. audience sees you, uh, perceives you, and ultimately will engage with you. Yeah, I mean, I think that was that was one of the so over over the course of the time that I that I was working there, we relocated the team three different times. Um, And that doesn't include all of the other opportunities we had in there to relocate the team that we didn't. Um, I started out on retention marketing. Um, so reporting into my first boss, there was Brad Olson, who's now the CEO at Solace Health and is a wonderful mentor and, and leader for our team. Um, but very, very focused on retention. And so we were very focused on engagement. This was very much like social as community. And when I came in and when we started thinking a little bit more about what does growth look like and how do we, how are we going to expand, you know, at the moment that it became, you know, it, it, and that it aligned with sort of internal reorganizations and, and, and sort of reallocations of responsibility. I actually sat on, we moved the team onto our comms team. Um, so I was mm. reporting into our SVP of global communications and being able to be aligned with the PR team in that way and to, to have more visibility and be earlier in the conversation um, in terms of all of our external messaging made a certain kind of sense. Um, and I think ultimately we, when we took the opportunity um, in the last, I don't know, 18 months um, to shift on to the brand marketing org, which was somewhere that I, I had been, it was a change. It was a change I've been thinking about for a really long time. Um, I'm a very firm believer that like, if you're smart in your professional life, you choose managers, not jobs. Mm. Um, and so I, I was very much watching who I was working for yeah. and, and sort of where in the organization was a really healthy place to be. And I think as the, as the marketing org really reformed, um, there was a point at which I was sort of like, this is the right thing to do both for my own growth um, and in really seeing social as an extension of brand. Um, and also for my team to give them additional growth opportunities that ultimately, while being aligned with PR and all external comms made sense for the company, it was harder for my junior team members to see a path forward and a path to growth if they weren't interested in comms work themselves. And so moving into, into something that was really like a, a marketing focused integrated environment allowed them to see much more how their creative and strategic skills could be applied elsewhere. Oh, that's really interesting. And is that where the social team resides today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Although I, I mean, I'm, I, I, it's, it's been a couple of weeks. I don't know. You know. Yeah, well, yeah. That. I guess any anything is um, anything's possible. But yeah, yeah no, the, the the marketing team approach of sort of a unified marketing team where we've now broken down those silos between brand and acquisition, and we're really all pulling together as one marketing team, um, was a really wonderful environment to work in, and I think has been has been really fun for the for the team to get to be much more involved. I think that's the fight of every social lead at every brand is how to get social in the conversation sooner. Yeah. And how to be in the room when decisions are made and not being handed, I'll use the, you know, the nightmare phrase, cut downs for social at the end of the campaign ideation process when everything's already gone through post-production and they're like, here, here's your 30 second edit that you didn't ask for. Yep. Um, and I think over, over the years, and that is one of the real gifts of having had years to build relationships and to advocate for our work in that environment, we were able to get in the room very early increasingly early. Um, and for most of the brand work that was that was coming out of Peloton now, I know that's the big project for the team is figuring out how to give it its best home on social. Yeah, I think that's right. So does that really look like you guys showing up to like on shoot day and having somebody from you or from your team there to take 
behind the scenes content or have 20 minutes mm -hmm. with, you know, whatever it is to shoot extra content that is social first content versus, you know, marketing. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely looks like that, but the planning, like the planning for that shoot day, I mean, that, that has to start well before day of. Oh, of and course. that means that you've been brought in ideally even at the concepting phase, mm -hmm. you know, and for, for certain campaigns, I mean, it, like it depends, right? If, if the campaign that you're shooting for, if this is for, you know, you need to, to re up your digital stills for your, you know, for your home mailers, like does social need to be a part of that? Like not necessarily, you know, that's, that's not, but if the goal of the campaign, if this is a brand campaign or if this is, you know, a special event or a holiday campaign that has a CTA that involves sharing to social or that is expecting to drive traffic to a specific landing page via social, involving your social team in that thinking and even understanding something as simple as like, hey, where's, where's the channel where we see the most, like the highest CTR? You know, it's, it's, I used to be, we used to see great CTR on Instagram stories. And then we had to pivot very quickly on a, on a recent campaign, um, in, in the last year or so, because all of a sudden our reach on stories just dropped along with everybody else's. Like it wasn't just us, yeah. but all of a sudden I was like, I can't, I can't tell you in good conscience that we're going to get the same kind of visibility that we normally do. And this isn't the channel we want to concentrate on. I think we need to take a different approach and re-strategize. And without that kind of local knowledge of what's working on channels, it's very, very hard to come up with a strategy that's going to be successful because where you put it makes a difference. Yeah, you know, oh, of where, course. You, where you allocate spend and how much you allocate to different channels. Um, if you're really relying on organic, then that's something that you, you need that insight in order to plan. Mm-hmm. And so I take it from the way that you're speaking about it. You guys did really rely on organic and you saw a lot of good success. I think we, we work very closely with our, with our paid team. Um, and that was, that was some work that I'm very proud of over the, over the last couple of years, especially was of really starting to align and try to look for opportunities where we could really be synergistic in our thinking in, you know, we were able to share insights with our paid team to say, Hey, like, listen, this kind of lo-fi creative is really working. Do we want to test some of this against our sort of normal creative and see how it performs or, you know, like, Hey, like we, you know, we'd love to know what you're planning on promoting here. Like, is there something really funny we can do on organic that plays off this thing that we know is going to get a ton of visibility because we're spending a ton of money on it. Um, and, and those, those, I think collaborations were some of our most successful and really gave both teams a lot of insight into where we needed to go directionally and what kinds of things we wanted to make. So it's, it's definitely not that we were super reliant on organic. I think it's just that organic was really always part of the conversation, um, in terms of where, where campaigns were going to show up. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's almost like if you're a, if you're a brand thinking about how to integrate social, uh, into your marketing division, mm -hmm. it, would it be a fair thing to say, look, you're going to have your marketing leads, but then you need to have right up there, the person who's heading paid along with the person who said it heading social, right? Like organic social paid social paid media generally, like all of these people need to be in the room talking and making sure that they are, um, using best practices from, from all three, really, right? Did I miss any of those? Any any other I mean, people you put I in the room? I think it's even. I, I think ideally, and this is this is more of a. I don't know. This is more of a relational thing okay. than a business sure. thing. Although I don't know, all business is relationships. Sure. Um, but ideally, I think you can you can push to go a step beyond just 
you know, we need all of these people present and accounted for, and we need all of them, you know, kind of thinking to like aware of what the other one is doing. But can we get them thinking together? Can we build a bridge between paid and organic that really make, because ultimately your end user, they don't, they're, they don't know that this, this paid ad came from one creative team that's using this external agency to build their creative. And that what they're seeing on TikTok came from a completely different team who's never even met the agency rep who made that creative it's all one brand to them. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, if you aren't looking for every opportunity to, to unify your approach, to create efficiencies and to look for opportunities to work together and to play together. um, I think, I think you're missing out on what can be both a really fun work environment and an opportunity to test things you wouldn't otherwise test, to have access to AB testing for your organic that you might not otherwise bother doing. Um, and to have the kinds of creative insights that I think paid teams are sometimes slower to adopt because they have all this pressure on them to, to hit specific KPIs and goals. And they have different levers that they're pulling and they're not necessarily thinking about it from that baseline creative standpoint. Yeah, definitely. Now, did Peloton, did, did they do paid internally or were they using a media agency? Um, it was it was a combination. I I don't want to speak to the larger strategies. Yeah, of course. I'm meeting. just thinking like you know, because um, yeah, a lot no, of times if you have that agency, yeah. it, it does add a layer of complication. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, no, there was there was there were there were pieces of it like you know our influencer program was more in house. Our business as usual kind of paid creative was was done in partnership with the media agency. Um, and there were, and really, I think every combination under the sun over five years. I mean, that's that changed a lot over time. Yeah, as we as we talked about, right? It was yeah. different, a different business every six months. I think that's a great, a great point. <laughs> so, what is? I mean, what's your what's your number one takeaway from this time um, and this experience at Peloton? Oh, one takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's, it's a lot of pressure. No one's asked me that yet. Um, that's 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 a really interesting question. I think. I think if there's one takeaway, I think it's that at the end of the day, like at the end of the day, the audience is all that's, that's really it is that no matter if you are making something that people want and that people are excited about, however you get it to them, like it can be perfect. It can be messy. It can be somewhere in between. Um, but if, if you're getting them the right product and the right message, it will resonate with the right people. And if you haven't refined that quite yet, it's not going to work. And I think that's, I think that was the lesson of the product in a lot of ways. There were plenty of people out there who have very negative relationships with exercise, who were not interested in finding a better way to exercise because exercise for them is a form of torture or something they do because they have to, not because they want to. And so the notion that this product was enjoyable in any way was, was confusing and, and was not, wasn't resonating. But for people who we had found like this product market fit, that this was really something that was, that was giving them something they weren't getting in their lives elsewhere. It was like, yeah, we made a lot of mistakes and there was some silly creative and, you know, like we didn't, we didn't necessarily do everything right along the way, but there was a rightness to it and a truth to it. And I hate to overuse this word, but an authenticity to it. Yeah. That um, that you really I think you can't fake you can't fake that connection. Totally. I think that's well said. And I think that that is really important, especially in 2023 and what we're going to see beyond, because Mm -hmm. recommendation algorithms on social are making the individual, the creator who's making the content less relevant. And so 
if it doesn't matter who made the content, as long as it's interesting, we're going to, we're going into the sea of one hit wonders, possibly it's going to be a lot harder to build an audience, but the reality is those who do and those who have are going to be incredibly powerful and incredibly important to brands as part of their overall influencer marketing and social strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's really, I think it's a crucial piece of what's happening. You know, like everything tends towards the middle, right? Yes. Everything, everything gets genericized, everything gets copied. Um, and it happens faster and faster um, in digital than it ever does in, in, in real life. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't new things happening all the time. You know, like you look at like the cat, I, I don't know, I think about it in terms of like, I forgot what I was watching the other day, but it was, I was like looking at it and I was like, my God, like Jennifer Aniston has been famous, like as long as I've been alive. Right. And you know, and I watched now the, the, the humbling moment, I think, for every social media person over 35 is having to watch like the VMAs every year and, <laughs> and like live tweet the VMAs red purple. I was so glad when I like didn't have to do it anymore because sure. it was just like an exercise. And you're like, who are these people? Like, why do we need more celebrities? Like, don't we have enough? But there's always new people coming up. There's always new ideas and new faces. And that's something that people thrive on. And I think that's going to be true in the creator market as well as in the traditional entertainment market. You know, we, we're always seeking the next big thing. And it's, I think it's, a, it's harder to break in. It's harder to break through, but it's far from impossible. Mm -hmm. I, I, I yes, that's, that's a great way to put it. Far, far from impossible. Yeah. I like that a lot. And how, I mean, if you think about how influencers played into the strategy at Peloton, can you just tell us a little bit about like, how, do you, how, did, how did you guys sort of define influencer? Mm -hmm. And then how did you use yeah. influencers? Yeah, I mean, so for, for the very early days, you know, instructors were our influencers and are our influencers. They're, they're the most, they're the intuitive, obvious face of the brand. Um, they're also in a lot of ways the people who are really best positioned to speak to the product and to speak to the experience because they're the ones who kind of make it. Sure. Um, and I think it was uh, the way that I would describe it. I don't know if you've ever driven like a manual transmission. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Not everybody has, but I was forced to learn. Um, and, you know, when you're learning to drive, like the way that you, the way that you have to operate a manual transmission is you have to like ease up on the clutch as you press the gas. And finding there's like a tension point, a balance point at which it's okay to kind of release on one and really go hard on the other. And what we were experiencing in the early days of the brand was essentially so much earned and so much, so much like celebrity UGC essentially that running an influencer program was actually sort of difficult. Like, you know, when Ellen DeGeneres gets up and does 15 minutes on her favorite Peloton instructor completely because she wants to without any involvement from our team at all. Like that's a placement that you couldn't buy. I don't even know how much something like that would have yeah, cost. A lot. Mm -hmm. It would have been millions and millions of dollars. And so when you're getting something like that for free, like, are you also placing, you know, are, are you also placing individual Instagram posts with 30 day loaners of somebody with 50,000 followers? Like, we, we knew there was going to be a point at which that kind of coverage and that kind of love would start to slow. And that would be the moment at which we wanted to start like releasing the clutch and pushing down on the gas of our influencer program. Um, obviously with COVID, I think that that actual inflection point 
would have naturally happened sometime in that period. But like then, I don't know, everything was going crazy. Of course. And I don't, I don't think we got it right on the nose. Um, but we're now very much at a point where I think having, have, and I don't, you know, I don't want to speak to the sort of the go forward strategy because that is someone else's opportunity to, to take advantage of. Um, but at least in the way that I was thinking about it before, before my, my time came to a close was that our instructors are really, really wonderful surrogates for the people who have been our members for a long time and for people who love to exercise. But there's not, as, from a storytelling perspective, they're not plausible in every capacity. Mm-hmm. You know, that like every time we tried to shoot something like a, you know, like a, hey, Andy, like, can you show me how to do a bicep curl? Like, that's not believable coming from a Peloton instructor. They know. It's their job to know. It's why we hired them. Sure. Um, And they're the best at it. And so they're they're very interesting stories that you can tell with that kind of expertise. But you can't represent the newbie journey in the same way. You can't represent the discovery journey in quite the same way with people who have been immersed in any given world for a long time. And I think you always, in as part of your, your acquisition thinking for organic, you always want to have content that represents that experience of somebody who's coming in on day one. And so that's, I mean, that's, that's sort of an interesting thing. We talked a lot about who is our audience surrogate, not our, not our necessarily just the influencer with the biggest reach, but who's telling a story from a point of view that certain members of our audience need to hear. And I think that's where influencers can be really, really helpful is that if they're on a new journey for themselves and they're sharing that with their audience, it's not just believable, it's actually happening. Um, You know, in many cases, like we've worked with a lot of influencers and heard from a lot of people who some of them, you know, some of them are fitness people and they love to exercise, but this is a new program for them and they're trying to see if it works. Or sometimes these are people who exercise has not been a big part of their life or a big part of their brand publicly, and they're ready to start exploring that part of themselves. And we get to go on that journey with them in a very authentic way because it's happening in real time and it's happening in front of their audience and our audience. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's brilliant. It's like you guys again. We're sort of gifted in much in much of the similar way. I think what we've seen with brands initially. So you, I think about this journey of uh, people in front of the camera that are not the brands necessarily, mm-hmm. right? I think about it in a few different ways. So one is I think we have branding like 1.0 where you have the um, flow from progressive insurance, so these characters, right? The Geico Gecko. Like that's, that's sort of influencer 101, if you will, right? That's the face of the brand. And then you move into 2.0. So then you have things like BuzzFeed uh, who has like a whole slew of creators. You have the WWE. Mm-hmm. You know, and they have a sl- right. slew of creators, Refinery29, Bon Appetit. They all build these sort of networks of creators. And I think that Peloton is sort of at the right at the end of this before we pivot into something else that I'll talk about in, the mo- in a moment. But, you know, when you look at WWE, they create these characters. Mm-hmm. And WWE owns it, right? They own right. the name they and likeness of that character, the social properties, all of that. Now, we're starting to see some changes in there. And I think we're even seeing them in the sports industry mirrored with, like, NIL, name, like, name mm-hmm. and image likeness rights. Those are shifting, and the sh- shifting is going back to the individual. And I think that Peloton was on the cusp of that, right? Because I see all of these, this sort of like instructor-to-creator pipeline uh, is there, right? Yeah. And you guys were really smart in the way that you capitalized on it and allowed them to go forward. But like, tell me how, tell me how that works 
Uh, yeah, like when absolutely. someone's starting to grow, to grow and, and big, how do you support, do you do anything? What was Peloton's philosophy on this? Mm-hmm. I mean, our philosophy from the very beginning, and this is, <laughs> this is going to sound so obvious. This is not going to sound like a strategy at all, but I think people forget sometimes that like creators are humans. They're real, yes. they're people. And being being human to being humane to humans was like kind of the policy that like ultimately these are these were especially in 2018 we're a much smaller company at that point we're only like i think i joined around 500 employees so when i started and there were a dozen instructors you know they were they were certainly the biggest most visible part of the company but these were your colleagues these these are people you work with and who you see and who come in and out of the office for meetings and like it was an interesting experience to watch them become famous and to sort of go through that like celebrity branding process. But they're all incredibly authentic people. I've always said the the one thing that made my job really easy over five years was I never had to report to somebody that like their fave was problematic and that like behind the scenes they weren't like, no, they're, they're as great as they seem uniformly to a person. And I think it was always really, that was something we really valued that like, I think you have to look at what you have in people in your human capital and say that if we hired you because you're great because of who you are, why do we want you to be something else? And so we really created and maintained like a strong sort of Venn diagram model of personal brand versus Peloton brand. And we sought out and we used branding agencies to support this, but to help the instructors understand like, what does it mean to be a personal brand, first of all? So what is where is where is your overlap? So this is everything that you are as a person. And then like, here's your personal brand, which does not necessarily include every single thing you are as a person. And we went through all the growing pains of like, how much do you talk about your personal life? You know, how much how much do you share about this thing that like, you know, is maybe a hobby or that you're exploring for the first time? Like, how do you how do you talk about that? Or, you know, how do we involve politics or, or social issues in the conversation? And that was all, you know, an, an ongoing, constantly negotiated process. But we were always very clear that the brand has its values and its priorities and the instructors have their values and their priorities. And what we were going to explore on brand channels and what we were going to support as a company was the things in the overlap. Um, most, most aggressively. That was really how we started. So, you know, I'll take one of my favorites, for example, you know, like Emma Lovewell is an incredible gardener. Um, Mm -hmm. she's built that she's one of our spin instructors and she, or one of our cycling instructors, and she has built this incredible, you know, like vegetable garden and she grows flowers and she landscapes and she has like a, a wonderful book that's out. Um, and like, does gardening have anything to do with Peloton? Like, do we have any place as a brand in a conversation about gardening? We don't, we just, we just don't. It's like, there's like maybe a tangential connection to healthy eating, but like, it's a bit of a stretch and it's not a messaging priority for the brand. So are we likely to develop gardening content with Emma on social? No, but there's nothing that stops her from doing that because it's a part of who she is and we want her to show up as who she is authentically. And we'll look for ways for when she's taking produce from her garden to make her morning smoothie to, you know, to find a way in to, to be supportive when we can. And when we can't, there are plenty of other aspects of her personality and her work that we're, we're always able to support and we're always able to talk about because they're intrinsic to what the brand is. Mm, so you, your suggestion for brands who are potentially looking to hire 
uh, creators, influencers, social media managers who are going to be the face of the brand would be to lean into those who share, who have an overlap in values. Yeah, I think Focus you have to look for people. I think you have to look for people who are who are an intuitive and natural fit, and who represent where you where you want your brand to grow. Who are people who you think you can grow with, um, and I think just to recognize the inevitability. Or at least to plan every day. I mean, I, I we said this all the time. I said this all. I was like, I hope they all stay forever. But we have to be prepared for the day when they don't. And we have to be bigger than that as a brand. We have to own the ideas. We have to own, you know, our our own IP, our own concepts. Um, that's not the same thing as owning somebody's name or owning somebody's right. identity or personal brand. But you know, you I, I think you want to strategize. As you want to strategize on offense, as if they'll be with you forever, and on defense, a defense knowing that they can leave tomorrow. And so, what do you need to have in place? What do you need to have thought about? What do you need to prepare your community for, um, in order to to deal with that eventuality? That really is like an inevitability because life happens, things happen. Exactly. We were, yes. I think, we were incredibly lucky to keep the same cast of instructors for as long as we have. But it's, it's not a guarantee. And when you bring somebody in with the intention of making them the public face of a big brand that's spending a lot of money to, to make them visible, assume that they're going to grow and that they're going to become famous in their own right. And you're then going to have to manage that, that there are going to be elements of their personality and their story that don't really have anything to do with you that they're going to want to talk about. And just I think it's just recognizing that that's going to happen and to not try to fight it to instead try to plan for it and to to have a concept in mind of what you're able to absorb and what you're not. Yeah, I think that's really smart. Just having that framework is going to be so incredibly important. And I think as you look at Peloton, you know, you guys had 50 some instructors, right? Mm -hmm. So that's 50 personalities. Now, obviously, you're going to have kind of the top probably what 10, 15% that really drive a tremendous amount of online engagement for you. Mm hmm. But a lot of brands who are saying, okay, I'm hiring a chief TikTok officer. I'm going to hire three faces of the brand. You know, they're talking about three versus right. 50. So when one person leaves, it's one third of their brands, like their social facing um, right. brand personalities. So how would you instruct brands or guide them or give advice to them on how to prepare a proper defense strategy for the, when the inevitable does happen. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's the way you prepare any content strategy, which is that you know you have a go forward strategy that's proven and that's built around certain pillars, and then as soon as you've established those pillars and you've developed content around them, it's time to start figuring out like what's next. You know, what are we going to test next? What are we? You know, so maybe it's not bringing in occasional guest stars, you know, and and making sure that you're testing like how are other people performing, like what kinds of interactions work. Like, are there, are there other sort of side characters that are becoming popular in this narrative if we're doing something that's really personality driven? Or are there other things that we can explore? Like, is there, is there some sort of more designed or like data visualization stuff that can be made without people that's going to be just as effective in telling that story once we know what kinds of stories people like to hear? And I think it's, I think you need to constantly be in that test and learn. And that's not any different than putting together any other kind of content strategy that once we've said, you know, these are our buckets. I think the first thing any, any social lead starts doing is kind of poking increasingly into white space and yeah. saying like, what, okay, but what else is, is there something else that needs to be in here? And like, after now that we've run this program for a little while, 
Like, what do we have to, what's starting to fatigue and what are we going to replace it with? Yes, I love that. I think that's very similar to the way that um, TV shows and their cast, when they have, you know, a group of like five teenagers in mm-hmm. high school, you know, say by the bell style, if you will. Um, you know, how they, how mean, they look at that. Andy Cohen, that mad genius, does this better yes. than anybody else. You know, like you see this on like Bravo shows all the time. There are always these tangential third party characters who come in and mix it up and like, they get elevated sometimes to full cast members and sometimes they don't. And like, there are people floating around in the extended universe of all of these shows who help to make the experience and who help to pad out and to, and to compensate for when you have to compromise on something with one of your leads um, or when they're not able to do something or willing to do something. That's right. I love the Bravo connection. I hadn't really considered that previously, but that, that is so right. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, right, exactly. crazy, uh, crazy success there. So that, that's an interesting, <laughs> that's a really, that's a really good takeaway, I think, and a good way to kind of shift perception on, on how things have done because my, general like MO is that everything has been done before. You just need mm-hmm. to look back in history and the right spots to find it, figure out how yeah, to find no, out and listen, then apply it to yourself. Technology so. changes and mediums change and creative interests change and culture changes, but people fundamentally don't change very much at all. Yes, that's um, true. As much as we'd like to think that we do, we're actually not that... Uh, no. <laughs> we don't change that much. That makes sense. I always joke that like I have conclusively found the only career path that allowed me to prove my parents wrong, that writing and anthropology were not a viable like foundation for a career path. But I always say, I'm like, who knew that anthropology was going to be like incredibly valuable as a basis yes. for a career that wasn't yeah. being an anthropologist. Um, but it really is, you know, like the way that people need to feel heard, the way that we exchange gifts, the way that we that we show value and show respect and what we demand out of groups, how we behave in groups. It's, it's, it's all happening every day. And it's not that different than how it's ever happened. You know, like, I I think there will be fascinating ethnography written about the digital world that is going to feel exactly like, I don't know, exploring (laughs) jungles in a terrible colonial like way that needs to be totally reexamined and, and problematized. Um, you know, does, does now when you look back a hundred, 200 years. Wow. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, what do you think? Okay. So let's say we hit pause on the digital world right now. Okay. 2024, everyone says, forget digital. We're going back to inner life. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think would be in the, um, in the papers and the an- anthropology? Like what are anthropologists going to say about this time frame in the digital space? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's the same, I, I, I think it's really sort of the same principles that drive all of these things, right? We have a desire for connection. We have a desire for importance. We have a desire for, to like build up our own egos and to, to put ourselves first. But it's in direct conflict with our desire to build relationships with other people in a lot of ways. Yes. You know, we, we, want to, we want to be right about things. We want to share our opinions. We want to interact. Um, I think we don't, I think if we were to hit pause on the digital world for 20 years, it wouldn't be a bad thing to give people a chance to kind of regroup and reacquaint themselves with their interior lives Mm -hmm. um, and with what it means to keep that life interior rather than spill it all over the internet. Um, But there are also like, I don't know, I think we often look at the worst case scenario of a given cultural phenomenon and we forget about the millions and millions of people who are seeking a middle ground just like we are. You know, I actually don't know very many people who put every detail of their life on the internet. I know a lot of people who have Instagram, like pretty much everybody. 
you know, but it's not a choice between being a Luddite and being, you know, like the absolute craziest spill your guts kind of influencer. We all have a private life. We all have things that we're not ready to share. And I think figuring out how to build viable businesses around, around this type of connection and this type of interpersonal storytelling um, is, is as viable as it ever was. You know, I think it's, yeah. this, is, this is ultimately the entertainment business. I don't think it's surprising when you look at what happened with, you know, with like Meta's pivot mm-hmm. towards communities and groups. And then, you know, now trying to pivot back to like, essentially, I think their big bet that people want to hear from other people was like kind of wrong. <laughs> you know, we, mm, we like hearing. Interesting. Okay. I, think, I think groups turned out to be a good tool just because like, honestly, not everybody's built for forum life and, um, you know, and, and groups were a useful organizing mechanism on a platform that has a ton of scale. But ultimately, like, I'm not that interested in like my college friend sharing something that her like about like her uncle, like that compared to like the available universe of entertainment is pretty low priority for me. So this swing towards TikTok, it doesn't, I don't think it represents anything other than a basic desire to be entertained. And we've always had that since we sat around campfires and started making shapes on the walls. Like that's, yeah, that's that right. is a really, really deep urge. And it's not surprising to me that it's, that this pendulum has swung back towards privileging content that's created with entertainment in mind. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's really just what we've always done. I think this moment where we were all incredibly entertained by the minutia of each other's lives, that was the aberration. That was yeah. not. That was yeah, not well, it was just, it was interesting because you never quite had yeah. a look behind the curtain, right? So it was new. And so I think we definitely all leaned into it. But I absolutely think you're right of the entertainment. I think you see it in terms of the way people are interacting in digital, right? To your point, it's like TikTok, yeah. YouTube, entertainment. But then you have all these niche communities popping up, you know, mm-hmm. Discord, you have broadcast channels um, on Instagram, which I think are kind of an interesting thing. You have all of these, what they're calling dark social. I think it needs to be rebranded to sound a little bit more positive, but like, <laughs> you know, dark social things happening in the DMs and the messaging system. Like that's, yeah. that's where the communities have gone and that's where exactly. you interact with people who you do care about. Right. And I so, think when you look at what happened with like, you know, with Clubhouse, with Be Real, like why some of these platforms have failed to gain traction, it's that ultimately like listening to strangers drone on for two to three hours at a clip, like yes. apart from this very specific circumstance where none of us were allowed to leave the house for a year, like exactly. nobody's, no, nobody's doing that. <laughs> like podcasts get edited, you know, like they, 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 they are planned. They are done by people like you who have a lot of experience interviewing yep. and, you know, who have the opportunity to really curate who they're speaking with. That's and right. with being real similarly, like, I don't know, it was, it was a little grim to realize how much time all of us are just spending with our laptops on our laps. And yes. I'm like, cool. Like, I feel a brief sense of connection to everybody I know who's also just sitting here, like, watching something on their laptop. But, like, do I need to look at it every day? Like, I don't right. know. Exactly. Um, and I think that's, I think that's ultimately, like, the lesson there is that, like, normal people are less interesting than interesting people. And we always elevate those people to positions of visibility. Yes, 100%. I think that's so spot on. Okay, I have two more questions for you, um, although I feel like I could talk to you for, like, three hours. So... <laughs> Um, okay. So the first, the first big question, I I just have to know from a sense of curiosity in sex in the city, when there was that Peloton product placement that was maybe not in the best positive light. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, I feel like everyone it's, 
it's happened a long time ago, but still, it's a spoiler alert in case you haven't seen it. Um, when Mr. Big, uh, right? So people are going to be catching up. Yes, exactly, exactly. So when he hops off of his Peloton and has a heart attack and dies, we're thinking, wow, that's not really the best look for Peloton. Even though I think we know that that's not necessarily like doesn't happen every time you get off your Peloton. But that's a big moment, and that's that's a moment when yeah. social is like. I'm sure you guys are sitting there saying, oh my gosh, what do we do? Right? Because you have to address it. How do you not address it on social media? Yeah. Um, so in that moment, when you are a community lead, you are a PR firm, you are, you're literally everything. You're the voice for the company. What do you do? Yeah. I mean, I think there were, there, I, I think what we felt was what, what, what we were feeling was sort of a twofold need to respond and I don't expect anybody to go back and do like a forensic revisit of what we actually did. Um, but I will take this time in case anybody is listening and needs this information to talk about what we talked about the initial press release, which is the actual right answer about this. Because the thing that we saw that was actually alarming was people saying that like they were going to cut back on cardio because they were scared. And we had, yes, which is, so we, talk, we talked to a couple of cardiologists, first of all, because I, I'm a big believer in facts. I know that's like weird on the internet, but love facts <laughs> and information. Um, and it's very pithy cardiologists put it in a way that I say to people all the time whenever this comes up, because I want the truth about this out there, which is that, and he said it in a way that was like, it was way too subtle for like a tweet. Like it was, it was so smart that I was like, I don't, I think this is like too smart for the medium, frankly. But what he said was, he's like, listen, he's like, if you want to elevate your chance of dying today, you should do cardio. He's like, if you want to significantly lower your chance of dying for the next 50 years, you have to do cardio. And it's like, again, like, it's like, it's, it's not the sort of thing that's really designed for a tweet because you have to actually think about it. But what he was talking about was that, yes, there is in the short term, a slightly elevated risk when you jack up your heart rate. Um, but over time, constantly exercising your heart and lungs and making sure that your cardiovascular system is strong is the best way to keep you safe. And we've heard so many incredible stories over the years from members who have written into us and said to us, like, I did have a heart attack. And my cardiologist says I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't been doing all of this cardio. Like, it's also the thing that can strengthen your heart muscle to survive something like that. And so we knew that. We knew we had all of these years worth of testimonials and making medical claims for brands is very, very difficult. It's not, it wasn't, it was something that in a lot of ways, I don't think we could say what we wanted to say which was that we know that this is wrong. This is like bad dramatic TV writing. And to do this like was like, I don't know, it was, it was harmful to our product, but it was harmful to anybody who takes information from pop culture. Sure. Um, so that was really frustrating. Um, just because, you know, I believe honestly, we, we believe in our product and we believe that we were doing something that was good for people. And to have this perception out there now that it was dangerous um, was, really, was really frustrating. Um, so I think there's always that sort of probably more PR driven sort of desire to, to set the record straight um, and to self-correct. And then for me, there was a really strong desire to say, like, to, to kind of play with this, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm not like the clapback queen. That's not sure. that's not my identity. We're not, you know, a fast food brand. That's not right. what we really thrive on doing. But this felt to me like an opportunity to engage with an incredibly, incredibly active fan community. You know, I grew up with Sex in the City. This was like, I, I know this show. I know these characters. 
And to have the chance to say something that like, I don't know, that felt pop culturally relevant and that would put us back in the conversation um, was, was, it was a really exciting opportunity. And really what I, what I had wanted to do and this, I mean, nobody ever, nobody ever does anything alone. Right. Sure. But ultimately like I had this idea, the, our, our head of North American bike marketing supported the idea. We got it to our CMO. She got it to Ryan Reynolds. Like nice. that was, and that was, but I mean, Ryan was, was in my head from the very beginning because I had lived through the holiday ad debacle where he did this exactly. to us with his chin commercial. Yeah. I was like, if there's anybody who can turn this around in 24 hours, it's going to be him and that team. And they're, they're an incredible organization in the way that they work. Um, and we were lucky to have leadership that was supportive and that wanted to do something. And it was willing to take this sort of kernel of an idea, which started out like really based in the fandom you know, in the, in the environment from whence the problem came, which I think is really key is like, you have to understand what the fans want out of a conflict. You have to understand what the community, it thinks about something. Like if this isn't your, like, I can't crack jokes about everything. I can't okay. do formula one. I can't do, you know, I can't do lots of like, like it's that's, you have to really, I think, understand a fandom in order to really talk about it. We had like subject matter experts come in when we were doing marketing stuff for Taylor Swift because you have to be so deep in that world. Yeah. Um, but for Sex in the City, I was sort of had this initial germ of an idea where I was like, you know, I was like, I think actually like the, the weird thing to me here is seeing Mr. Big as like a happily like partnered man. Like how many times did he screw Carrie over? You know, was he not the worst person for her to end up with? <laughs> like, the fan in me was still sort of screaming at this notion that he was living this happy, domesticated life. And I was like, I don't know. I was like, he seems like he might have faked his own death and run off with his cycling instructor. Like, that definitely seems like a way more Mr. Big move than just becoming totally. middle-aged and, like, dying in his bathroom. And that was sort of the seed of this idea was that I was like, can we do a PSA to say that like actually he's alive and well, actually cardio is good for you and he's just a bad person and that's why he has <laughs> I love it. I mean, that and, was brilliant. You know, it evolved from there and obviously, you know, it, they, <laughs> they, they made a decision to cast him that we assumed someone had vetted and it's, it, was, it was a whole thing. Um, but I think ultimately, even if the, the whole arc of the response didn't go the way that we necessarily hoped, sure. I think it was, it was a great moment for, for us as a company to learn how to pull together and to do that kind of real time response work, um, which we'd really been building up to over, over months and months of different initiatives and, and partnering to do it as effectively as possible. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important piece of the, the puzzle too, right? Is to have in plan a framework so that when, if and when these moments, which inevitably will come if you're a big enough brand, mm -hmm. you can address them. Yeah. Uh, addressing them in this know, way is so fun. It is fun, but it's hard to decide that you're going to pull oh the gosh. trigger and like, is yeah. it going to be this time? Is it going to be next time? Like, is it better if we just let it go and it will be over faster? And I think that's, it's, it's never until, never until you have the benefit of hindsight that you know if it was completely the right call. Yep, a hundred percent. But at least in this particular case, I think we can say it was absolutely the right call. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I still think it was. I think yeah. it was good for us to understand as a team that we could pull something like that off. Yeah. And I think it was good for us as an organization to have like a feeling of like a little win and to say mm -hmm. that like we don't just have to take whatever narrative someone else has assigned us. 
we can have a voice in the conversation and we can push back. Yes, absolutely. And do it in a way that's fun and not mm-hmm. kind of clap backy, right? Which is also can be fun and, and interesting if it fits for your brand. But yeah, I think- but there's so, I mean, I think, you, listen, I think the internet has learned to bait brands into fighting with each other. Mm, and true. that's that's the kind of interaction that I'm always wary of. Like, yes. I don't want to get into some sort of like pissing match with HBO. That's not exactly. my reason for being. Exactly. It's much more about can we add to the culture? Can we create Mm -hmm. culture? Can we give people another moment that is that's interesting and engaging, rather than like, are we going to fight? Like, no, (laughs) we're like we're adults working for real companies. We're not going to fight. Exactly. Yes, a hundred percent. And I think it's it's that's that POV that perspective is what keeps brands in the conversation in meaningful Mm -hmm. and interesting ways. So there's no doubt about it. Very interesting. Okay, that, that was just a personal nugget that I had to I had to know a little bit more about, um, just because as you pointed out, I, I'm also a fan of Sex in the City, and so that was a really I thought that was a really big win um, from my perspective at least. So, the final question I have for you is actually shifting gears a little bit away from B to C and a little bit more to B to B. So mm-hmm. we had talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, you know the Social Sander has launched a B two B influencer brand. And I think that LinkedIn is a big spot. Twitter is probably second, maybe YouTube, maybe TikTok. You know, as, as we explore these uh, different channels that are historically B2C, perhaps there is room and there are probably carve-outs for B2B. You've carved mm-hmm. out a nice slice of LinkedIn for yourself. So <laughs> my question for you is, how do you, how do you look at LinkedIn and, and why, really, why do you post there? Yeah, I honestly, I've asked myself that question, too. Um, I feel like I'm in the the thing that has been the most rewarding to me in the last couple in the last real sort of, I would say, like 10 years of my career has been moving into a position where I'm managing a team. And in social, you tend to manage very young teams. I, I don't think I've ever been personally responsible for somebody older than 25 and so it's really, it's the part of my, my job that I really find most rewarding is that kind of team building and mentoring. And I think, I think LinkedIn for me is a great channel to get to do that on a larger scale and to get to kind of, I don't know, I mean, to, to speak truth about an industry as one of the people who's been part of building that industry. Social media as a job, when I started doing it, was it was not really a job at that point. I've been doing this for more than for more than 12 years. And I always laugh when I see those posts on LinkedIn of people who are like, oh, you want 10 plus years of experience in social? Like, who has that? I'm like, well, not to date myself, but I have that. Like, yeah, I, have, exactly. I have friends and colleagues who have that. You know, there was, there was internet 10 years ago. I don't know if you know that. And all of these social networks are now like past their 10th birthdays. Like they are not, they were not what they are now, but there, there weren't that many of us back then. And I think people who've been running these sort of large scale programs for years and years, we've had an experience that in every time I've had the opportunity to meet somebody else in my position, you know, we've, we've had a really unique experience that is at the same time has a lot of commonalities. And talking about what it's like to build a career in this industry, there aren't that many people who are in a position to talk about it. And I feel obligated in some way as one of like probably a few thousand people, at least in, you know, in my immediate vicinity or market who can talk about it to do it, to to really make it clear to people who are starting now that like, yes, there is a path here and maybe here's what it looks like for you or here's how I wish I'd done it differently or here's how things have changed. And to be able to provide and scale some of that mentorship, you know, I think that was, 
that question of how do you scale a person, you know, is so much what we've talked about with creators, with our instructors at Peloton, with all sorts of things. And ultimately, like, I don't know if I need to be scaled, but if I have any support or wisdom that I can offer to anybody who's young in their career, I want to offer it. And I want to offer a sanity check to my colleagues and to other people who work in an industry that can be really chaotic and really crazy. Absolutely. because, you know, we, we all like have those moments where you feel alone or where you feel like an imposter or you feel like you just you just have no idea which way to turn. Mm-hmm. And peer mentorship has always been so incredibly important for me and valuable for me. And to have the opportunity to do that for others and to connect with other people who sometimes just need to hear, like, am I crazy? And the answer almost always is no, you're not crazy. I'm also feeling the same thing. And we're all we're all solving the same set of problems at different sure. companies and in different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really wise. And it's, it's, a, it's a noble pursuit for sure on LinkedIn. And I think what's, <laughs> what's interesting is that you have had the experience of seeing these instructors turn creators, influencers, and you've had sort of a, a backseat view from how Peloton has said, you know, you're here, we're here, how we overlap, here's how you personal brand, here's how you do all of these things. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you plan on taking some of that and putting it into your own LinkedIn, like wherever, you know, I mean, wherever you are in the internet? <laughs> I don't have the desire to, you know, to be a face of anything particularly. I've always sure. liked being behind the scenes. Even before I worked in social, I was very clear. Like I was a magazine editor. I was not, sure. I was not a writer. I didn't want to sure. be the one out in front. Um, but I think, I think if there's any lesson that I'm taking away here, it's also that in my consulting practice, I've started taking on some more clients who are, who are in the B2B space, but are interested in more of a B2C voice. And so it's yes. been really interesting to learn sort of how B2B companies and how, how, how companies who operate on a very different marketing paradigm, what can they learn from what we know? And how can I package up what I know and make it valuable to other types of companies than just the consumer brands that I've worked with in the past? So it's been a really interesting exercise for that as well, that like, I don't feel the need to be a B2B marketing influencer necessarily, but it's great to get to try out and experiment with my own voice again and to get to run as me instead of as as a brand. And it is, and it's fun, right? I think we talked a little bit about this, but you've been part of these platforms growth um, and rise really for most of your career. And so now to have a spot, like a place where it makes sense for you to share. Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. I find that uh, to be very interesting myself. And I do think, you know, we approach at the social center, at least that's how we're approaching B2B is to say, how do we make this interesting? Because people here, people are here to be educated, but there's a baseline entertainment. It doesn't have to be, you know, choreographed dances from B2B influencers. That's not what we're looking for. But, you know, there's a way to write. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it could be fun. Maybe, maybe there's something there. But you know, you can write in a in a style that's a little bit more entertaining that overlaps. Like, you know, how people mm-hmm. want to, how people want to receive content and how you write it, and kind of finding right. that overlap, I think, would be incredibly important. Um, I mean, is that is that some of the ways that you guide people who are B two B that want to have a B two C voice? Or are there any any trends or things that are yeah, interesting? That I you think would recommend? I think again, like I said, like English majors of the world unite. Like this 100%. is yes. in this chat GPT moment. Do you have a voice? Like, yeah. do you sound like a person? Do you sound like? Right. Do you sound real? Do you sound yeah. interesting or entertaining? Because as the baseline level of garbage content available on the internet continues to rise, mm-hmm. then the only way to set yourself apart is to sound like nobody else. 
And yes. it's something that I've, you know, I've, I've loved to write since I was a little kid. And I've always, I speak very much in the same way that I write. And I, I sound unique. I sound like me. And yeah. I think teaching other people how to do that and why to do that, I think it's going to become more and more crucial. I think, again, we're going to see a slight trend towards everything being written on ChatGPT. And then, I don't know, Google's algorithm is going to figure out how to tell that something was written by AI, and they're going to tank all those AI B2B blog posts. And then you're going to have to go back and find somebody with a point of view and a voice to write them. And you're going to have to go back and do that tone of voice work that you didn't do at the beginning. And so, like, it, sure, kick the can down the road six months, and when you have a little more budget and a little more runway. But I don't think that problem is solved. And I think ultimately there is not a lot of substitute out there for human experience and human voice and our ability to intuit what other people find entertaining or interesting. Yeah, 100%. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, having a, it comes back to community, right? Mm -hmm. What community are you building on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on YouTube, wherever you're, you know, wherever you're doing that? It's, it's definitely community first, entertainment second. LinkedIn, yeah, and I really, only, I really only want to do it if I can do it exactly my way. I really try yes. to avoid that, like, you know, line breaks every sentence, like all like, oh, yes. yeah. uh -huh. like you do, as I say, there's a strong trend towards the norm, all, all everybody sort of starts to move towards the middle. And I think because it's not my business, you know, it's this, it's not how I make money. Um, it's, it's a lot more fun to be able to say, I'm not going to do that because I don't need yet. this post to go viral. I don't need yeah. this to be huge. Yeah, exactly. And so you can take your time kind of curating it and making exactly what you want, which I think yeah, is a long, it's a long strategy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's fantastic because you're right. If you, if everybody does the same thing, it's none of it's interesting and we all gravitate right. towards what is interesting, what is entertaining. Um, and especially in the B2B world, how can we, how can we learn from this? Right. Yeah. Exactly. I, th I think we're really only on the cusp of B2B brands really starting to to rethink brand and to rethink yes. voice and to try to figure out how they're going to show up for their much more niche audiences. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, these are like audiences that are deeply invested. These are communities by default in a lot of ways. Yes. And I think figuring out how to leverage that is going to be a really interesting challenge in the next couple yeah. of years. I agree. And I think that they have probably a lot to learn from your, your time at Peloton because the reality is, is a lot of people, a lot of businesses can now elevate voices from within, from employees. Mm -hmm. And that's effectively what Peloton had done as, um, you know, in social content with their instructors. Yeah. Right? And every business has employees that are able to do that. Like, I don't know. I, the funniest person at Peloton is not actually like one of the instructors on screen, in my opinion. Sure. Like the person who consistently made me laugh for years and years and years is somebody whose voice I don't think anyone's ever heard outside of the company, but we all know he's hilarious. Sure. And that means that there's somebody like that in every single company. And I think figuring out how to, how to bring that, how to surface that and how to use that is, is, is really, that's the art and science of it. Yes, a hundred percent. I think that's, I think that's absolutely uh, critical. And I did think there's just one more question, just one more question. Mm -hmm. Um, as to pivot back to kind of B2C or really this could be B2B. One thing I noticed in the content that you guys have is it looks like you guys have a colossal content bank in which you can draw upon different pieces of imagery and video that you can use throughout social, because I would imagine, you know, you're not out there shooting for social every single day. Mm -hmm. There's gotta be some sort of like efficiency. So what is, What's that process like and how do you recommend somebody setting up a content bank kind of? 
quote unquote? Oh, well, everybody's going to hate this answer, but okay. I think ultimately, like, I try to rely a lot less on the content bank. I think, I think the ultimately when you, when you're lucky in a, in a business like Peloton to have an arm of your business that creates audiovisual content literally as part of the business, you know, being able to access class content is, is a massive advantage. And there are always photo shoots going on for, you know, there's, there's always a million things happening, but ultimately in this particular moment on social, it's not created for social. It's not designed with social in mind. And so having a, a really nimble content production and if not production ideation process to be able to say like, you know, like, I, I don't know, like, YouTube clip compilation style, like what, what's the idea here? What's the Mm -hmm. thinking? I think your thinking still needs to be sharp. It needs to be always on and it needs to be happening on an ongoing basis. Even if your content production isn't because you're constantly going to need to reframe and think about what's out there, think about what's trending and make the most of the moment. And the thinking always has to be fresh, even if the content production isn't. That's fair. I think that's, that's interesting. I would not have, I did not anticipate that answer from you. To be totally honest, I thought you guys were going to rely a lot on the content bank. Yeah, the content bank is a gift, but I think yeah. ultimately, and and I I see this in my work now that it can also start to become a little bit of a limitation. That like mm. you've now planned yourself ninety days out, and sure. then you're sort of looking around at each other. And you're like, well, now what do we do? And if you haven't built that muscle for content creation and for fast ideation and for quick turn trending ideas, then you're only ever going to be limited to what's in your content bank. And when your bank starts running empty, you don't have a choice but to spend a ton of money to refill it if you, if you don't build both types of capability. That's a great, that's a great point. Great point. Um, Wow. Well, this was a conversation. Um, I feel like I learned a tremendous amount. I hope that our audience learned a tremendous amount as well. Um, If they want to connect with you, what is the best place for people to find you for your consultation services? Probably on LinkedIn. Probably on LinkedIn. That's right. All right. Well, we will we'll link it for everybody um, here. And when we share it on social, we'll, we'll tag you in it as well. So, um, Kate, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on the podcast. And I'm um, so excited about what you do yeah. with the social standard. It's been so valuable for us. Good. Thank you so much. Um, See you next time, I guess. See you soon.